according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. It is episode 30. Fix the typo from last week. It's not episode 20. It's episode 30. Lessons on the coming kingdom. I still have a little bit of font issues and glitches that I I don't understand, but it is what it is. It'll show up on one of the slides and nothing I do fixes it. I change it, I save it, and then the next time I open the file, it's back to what it is again. So, the demons in the machine. All right. Luke chapter 17. The Pharisees want to know um, about the kingdom. Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, they want to know when is it coming. doesn't say what their motivation was or if, if it was proper or improper or anything of the sort. He gives them a cryptic answer because they don't need a, a developed eschatology. They need eternal life. And he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. It's internal. And the reality is uh, they can have a flawless eschatology. And if they're not saved, what good is it going to do them? What good does it do you or me or any of us uh, having a plan of God framework of this and that and whatever else? If we don't have eternal life, then all we have is just an earthly knowledge of something that uh, that does us no good. Well, he dismisses them with that answer, and then he has a whole message for his disciples on the coming kingdom. He said to, to the disciples, the, day, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Unrealized eschatology. A desire to see it, but not seeing it. Okay, Not seeing it. A blindness, as it were. And that's where Israel is today. Israel is under a blindness, under a partial hardening. Uh, God is not uh, unfolding his plan for Israel because God's unfolding his plan for us. And so until such time as uh, we are removed, Israel is not going to see their coming days. They're not going to see the coming of the day of the Lord. All right, well, this is where we are. We're dealing with the developed eschatology from verses 22 through 37. And uh, we ought to be able to, uh, to tie together our details on this here today. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. And we might get armored up, suited up, properly dressed, and properly ready for teaching. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. And we recognize that in the Levitical priesthood, the requirements were to put on special garments, uh, to go through the labor uh, cleansing procedure, uh, to um, verify the uh, ceremonial ritual purity status in order to be eligible for service. There was a lot of externals, a lot of requirements. And Father, I thank You that the reality of all these shadows is fulfilled in Christ, that we can uh, operate according to the standards of, uh, of a heavenly priesthood. Our garments are provided as a standpoint of our fellowship with you. And the cleansing procedure is the faithfulness that you have to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Father, when we com- confess our sins. 
Thank you for making all things possible. Thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the anointing that we have all received. That we can assemble here today under the uh, teaching ministry uh, in a priesthood, Father, to study to show ourselves approved. We pray that all things done today would be for your glory, for your good pleasure. Uh, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Lessons of the coming kingdom. And as I said, we are um, dealing with the detailed eschatology here, which is point four in the outline. So skipping over points one, two, and three, which we've covered in previous classes. The Lord then presented an eschatological prophecy for his disciples. An eschatological prophecy for his disciples. It's not for the Pharisees. They ask the question, but the message isn't for them. The message is for the disciples. And the change of address in verse 22, he said to the disciples, uh, different from how he answered them in verse 20. It's a, it is an indispensable feature of hermeneutics. You have to ask in every single passage, who is speaking? Who is he speaking to? What's the context for the message that's being delivered? And so please identify the distinction between verse 20 and verse 22. The answer given to the Pharisees on the one hand and the true answer, the not, not that he was lying, but the full, complete, thorough, comprehensive answer that's given to the disciples here in verse 22 down through verse 20, uh, 37. All right. And a total of uh, eight things that we get out of this. First of all, and we're going to focus on the seventh item here today. Um, there is coming for Israel a day of unseen eschatology. Uh, we read it already. Uh, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. A time of blindness. A time of wanting to see things unfold and just not seeing anything unfold. And that's, as I mentioned, that's where Israel currently is. God's program for Israel is on hold. He's not done with them. He's not replacing them. It will resume once the current uh, stewardship of the church is complete. And here we, uh, I think we understand the uh, application as it relates. Secondly, false messiahs are going to arise. We're going to see more and more of that. In fact, it's uh, a major feature of the Olivet Discourse, the false Christ that will arise. But they are going to have a finite geographic impact. The idea of going here or going there or the idea of being required to proceed to a specific location is, uh, is uh, contrary to what's going to happen when the real Christ arrives. When the real Christ shows up, it's not going to be a mystery. When the real Christ rules, he's going to rule the world from Jerusalem and every Gentile king will have to come and appear before him and his policies, his uh, sovereignty will be will have an effect in the entire inhabited earth. And so the idea that, oh, well, you have to look there or look here or run after a movement or run after a person who uh, is... Um, you know, somewhere else or somewhere obscure or you need a special uh, teacher to show you or special uh, teaching to uh, help you to see that so-and-so is the Christ. All right. Uh, it's been the character of false Christ in the whole history of the church age from the uh, first century on to the 20th century. Here we are now in the 21st century and all these various claimants to being uh, the Christ in one degree or another. Uh, they're all false. And uh, the Lord tells Israel that they, uh, they should expect that. Thirdly, when Christ does return, his arrival will be globally undeniable. 
globally undeniable. And the lightning is going to flash like it does from one part of the sky and shining to the other part of the sky. So will the uh, Son of Man be in His day. Globally undeniable. The whole world is going to see it. The parallel text in Matthew 24.30 is uh, also applicable here. It's going to be undeniable. Now, the rapture will be secret. Don't get me wrong. At the trumpet, when we're called out, um, it's not clear. And there's, uh, there's different opinions on this. Uh, some people think that it's going to be the trumpet's going to be so loud and the shout's going to be so loud that when we're translated and gone that it will be heard and it will be noticed and it will be uh, a worldwide event of, of that nature. Others, though, uh, believe, and I tend to think, that uh, it's the shout and trumpet are only for our ears and we're going to be gone so fast in the twinkling of an eye, uh, the world is not going to catch on until they start to figure out, you know, there's folks that are missing, right? And there's piles of clothes in different places and there's uh, planes that are crashing out of the sky and other things that are happening because believers are no longer there. Uh, as far as that goes. But one of the differences between the rapture and the second advent, I think, is the very public way that the second advent is going to be globally undeniable. Every tribe shall look upon him. All the nations will see him. And the Jewish nation in particular will look upon the Christ whom they have pierced. And it's going to be very publicly, globally undeniable. And so, uh, uh, you know, after all of the trumpets have sounded after all of the bowls have been poured out after all the vials have been emptied after you know a third of the earth has been killed and a third of the earth has been killed and another third of the earth has been killed and the four horsemen and everything we study in the in the great tribulation the idea that um uh people are going to be clueless about whether the christ has come back or not is uh, is is really rather i think amusing in the idea that you have to be just so willfully ignorant of the signs that precede the second advent. There are just hundreds of things that are going to happen between now and second advent. And they are going to happen in a very precise order. And it's laid out through the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, through the, the prophetic record of what is to be expected before the second advent of Jesus Christ. So his return will be globally undeniable. Now, the issues on... Um, Point D, then. The kingdom is no longer at hand. And it's, it's been like that for several episodes now. It's been like that since midway through the Galilean ministry, to be honest. Uh, at the point where he goes uh, up to feed the 5,000 on the mountain instead of going to Jerusalem for the Passover. When he does not appear in Jerusalem for the first time ever at the first Passover that he skips there, he feeds the 5,000 on the mountain. That event, the feeding of the 5,000, is the recognition, the public statement, that the kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand. And he never mentions it as being at hand after that point of time. It's, it's clear that the kingdom is being rejected and, and will be rejected ultimately when they reject their king and put him on a cross. Uh, so they're no longer preaching the at hand nature. In fact, the rejection requires a second advent. It requires an intercalation, an intercalation. Think calendar. Think uh, uh, the insertion of days. Okay, and um, literally, it's a, it's an insertion of days in between a day and the next day. Okay, right now we're dealing with a, with an insertion of days in between uh, week 69 and week 70 of Daniel's prophetic calendar. All right. And it wasn't a surprise to God. He knew all about it. I think he phrased 
the calendar passage in, in uh, Daniel chapter uh, 9. I think he phrased it specifically so that it would indicate the intercalation between week 69 and week 70. Um, but here we see it unfold from the standpoint of the Lord's ministry. And uh, this is why in Matthew 13 he started speaking of kingdom uh, in mystery language, the mystery of the kingdom. Beforehand he talked about the at-hand kingdom. He talked about the kingdom, the who's greatest and least in the kingdom. A lot of kingdom teaching, but in Matthew 13 he starts to speak of the mystery of the kingdom. And this is uh, what we deal with when we talk about the rejection of the king. The, uh, the whole concept of the mystery state of the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven in between the rejection of the king and the acceptance of the king. And so it, it encompasses the last half of the Lord's earthly ministry. It encompasses the entirety of the church age. It encompasses the tribulation of Israel, all of which is the mystery of the kingdom between the rejection and the acceptance of the king. So we can we can preach the kingdom and we should preach the kingdom, but we have to preach it as the mystery state where the kingdom is in heaven, where the uh, we're aliens and strangers, we're pilgrims, where uh, this world is not our home and uh, all of which because the kingdom is no longer at hand. And I think the more you study this and the more you understand that intercalation, the injection of days, um, you'll do yourself some huge favors because the church member is, is a part of that. The whole church is a mystery. The whole church is an intercalation. Okay, Something that uh, we haven't done in our country since uh, the 1700s. But early in our history, we had to, we, our nation had an intercalation. Actually, we were British colonies. And, and when England finally decided to go from the Julian calendar to the, to the Gregorian calendar, then they had 11 days they had to adjust. And so uh, they, they delayed for centuries because it was viewed as being a Roman thing. You know, the, the Gregorian calendar was Roman and England was Protestant. And so they, they resisted for the longest time. Uh, not the longest time, but longer than others. And, and then finally, in the late 1700s, they decided to go ahead and uh, adjust to the Gregorian calendar. So what it meant was, I forget the exact year, but at some point they... they you went to bed one night on one day, and then when you woke up the next day, it was 11 days later. They just chopped off those 11 days off the calendar, and, and there it was. See, anyway, it's, it's the fun you have with calendars. and it, Most people ignore it, but it becomes important. It's why all of our founding fathers have two birthdays. Uh, they all have two birthdays. When was George Washington's birthday? Well, there's two of them because whether you're going by the old style or the new style. Uh, they were born under the Julian calendar, so they had one birthday, and then it's now typically observed under the Gregorian calendar because that's what we've been operating under ever since. So, anyway, that's just what it is um, as far as that goes. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't anticipate we're having another one. I mean, we it's tragic just doing leap year and leap seconds and adjusting daylight savings time on a wrong Sunday kind of a thing, but... But a time is coming, let me tell you, one of the features of Antichrist, one of the prophecies regarding the coming man of lawlessness is that he will attempt to make alterations in times and seasons. And I believe one of the things that's going to happen is they're going to chunk the entire B.C., A.D. Uh, we're not we're no longer going to be Anno Domini in the year of our Lord because the false Christ is going to institute a whole new calendar, all dedicated to him. Okay, Can you imagine a world leader having that much hubris, that much ego, that much... Uh, where everything, even the calendar is going to be named after him. Okay. And we've got world leaders today that have some ego, but 
is just a foreshadowing of what's truly going to be unleashed upon this world. Point E. The days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now, I mentioned this last week. I'm not uh, chosen to not give um, more comprehensive teaching on this. So, what do we see in this verse? The days of Noah. Well, there's eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Well, what's wrong with any of that? What's wrong with eating? I like eating. I plan on eating today, and, you know, I like eating. And um, drinking, and... and um, marrying and given a marriage, you know, are we not supposed to have family life? Are we not supposed to, uh, uh, the point being though, is that they were so caught up in family life that they had no perspective for the judgment that God had been warning them about for a hundred years, a hundred years of warning, a hundred years of warning. And, uh, the very day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the days of Noah, there's some teaching there that goes into that. And I'm going to reserve it for the, <clears throat> the Olivet Discourse when we get into Matthew 24 and 25. Well, we'll spell it out a little bit more because I think we're going to see characteristics. We'll go back to Genesis 6. We'll go back to show the, uh, the issues there with the demonism and all, and all kinds of things. And we're going, to see, uh, we're going to see 21st century American uh, worldwide culture there. Uh, and then the days of Lot. Now, a little bit difference here uh, in the days of Lot. There's eating and drinking. Okay, well, that doesn't change. That's just like the days of Noah. More eating, more drinking. But now notice, marriage and giving in marriage isn't a feature of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> what happens when now it's no longer just family life. In fact, there's a breakdown of family by the time you get to the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, apostasy. It is, uh, family life is, is no longer, uh, you know, culture is totally devastated. There's no family culture. Uh, instead, You've got uh, economics in view. You've got, um, I'm losing my place. Oh, there it is. Buying, selling, planting, building. Just everything is all wrapped up in economic activity, commerce activity. And everything is career. Everything is success. Everything is profit. Everything is uh, commercial activity. And why bother with family life? Because functionally, there is no family life. You know, why, why is the homosexual community so financially well off? See, well, I think they're not raising families, are they? I mean, they're not worried about family life. They're not worried about, uh, you know, other th- If you think about it, they're just making money, making more money, making more money. And, and um, different components to the, to the way of life on that. Well, well, like I say, I'll, we'll have more on this in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. But the uh, the days of Lot is actually worse than the days of Noah. But God promised no more floods. And so uh, he's not destroying the world because of the days of Lot. He's just going to render a local wrath on the uh, five cities of the plain there in uh, at the south end of the Dead Sea. But we do have principles regarding cosmos societal conditions in the years prior to Second Advent. Okay, and do we see those societal conditions current today on planet Earth? You bet we do. Absolutely, we do. You know, there's very little left. Uh, Just in terms of table setting, in terms of general world conditions, there's very little left. You know, for 1900 years, there was a fair amount that you would say, well, we can't be that close because 
you know, until the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel, we would say, well, you know, how are the how are the Jewish people going to sign a treaty with Antichrist? You know, there's no nation of Israel. There's no Jewish people. Well, since 1948, we can say, you know what? Uh, it's now a possibility. All right. Uh, what is left? Uh, to, just to set the table to have you know, for world affairs or for uh, uh, philosophical outlooks on things. Very little. Very little. Okay, I think the, the minuscule amount of fine print details that might have to happen prior to the... I'm not talking about the signs. I'm talking about the, the on-ground conditions that have to happen before the, the 70th week of Daniel. There's, there's virtually... I mean, there's so little that's left. It can be handled in, in the, the initial days after the trumpet, after the rapture. See? And so the rapture has always been imminent, but it is more imminent today than ever before, if that makes sense. All right. Point F, then, the day of the revelation of the Son of Man will be a day of sudden judgment. Sudden judgment. And it's, again, it's remarkable. I think it parallels the days of Noah, where they had a hundred years of being warned. Uh, The tribulation, likewise, it's not like they haven't had warnings. It's not like they haven't had, uh, you know, the the nature of wrath that gets poured out throughout the, the tribulation is going to come upon them suddenly, and yet, were they not warned? (laughs) Were they not uh, clued in to trumpets and bowls and vials? I mean, don't they understand what the pattern is here? And then when the the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, and then when the landing occurs and the warfare is then engaged, for the few that are still alive at that point, um, it's coming upon them suddenly. And when they see that abomination... Now, it's not in this text. The abomination doesn't appear here. But there are warnings that are given in, in the Olivet Discourse that when the abomination is seen in the temple, run. That's the last clue. I mean, why are you even still here now? You should have run before now kind of a thing. But this is the last warning for, for running. And that's what happens here. This sudden destruction, this suddenness of judgment will require immediate, rapid evacuation. And, and it may be, and I think the nature of carnality the nature of the human nature, right? We talk about human nature a lot. Uh, but understand it's carnal human nature. It's fallen human nature. And sadly, even believers still have that human nature. To, to live in denial. And just say, well, it's not going to be like that. It won't be that bad. When the Bible's been describing it ever since. Ever since. You know, God's not going to be mocked. You know, mockers come with their mocking saying, oh, well, it's everything has been just like it's always been. Right. I mean, that's second Peter chapter three and mockers come with their mocking and it escapes their notice that the world at one time was destroyed by water. The world now is being reserved for fire. God is not going to be mocked no matter how the mockers mock. Okay, so just take the time to read through second Peter three, those early verses there and see that. God is not slow about his promise. He's patient. But see, what happens is, as we get this mentality, that well, it's been forever. Jesus isn't coming back. Are you kidding? No. There's no literal return of Christ. There's no literal hellfire. There's no literal. And the world gets wrapped up in postmodern deconstruction of language. The Bible doesn't mean what it says anymore. And so the suddenness of the judgment starts catching them. And by the time they realize, oh, God means what he says. (laughs) It's too late. They're already being obliterated in a horrible, horrible way. 
So it will be in the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. The Christ they hate, the Christ they curse, the Christ they malign is going to be revealed. And revealed with wrath poured out. With an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. I would much rather learn about him in as the as a lamb. <laughs> I, I want to know the lamb. I want to know the gentle Savior. I want to know the forgiveness of salvation and eternal life. But he will reveal himself for those that don't learn the one way. They're going to learn the other way. They're going to know their Savior. All right. So it says it will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. If you go back for anything, then you're too slow. You cannot turn back. You cannot... Uh, you don't have a moment to spare. You can't even say, oh, I, I forgot my keys or, oh, I forgot my cell phone, right? I mean, you leave your house without your cell phone. And you're like, ah. so you turn the car around and you go back because you can't exist without your cell phone. It's, it's, uh, it's horrible. You know, I resisted the dumb thing for years and years. And ever since I've owned one now, it's, it's like that. It's like a security blanket, you know, you know don't have your phone. Um, but, I mean... It is so extreme that if you're on the rooftop, it's saying you don't have time to go inside. Right? So how are you going to get off the roof? You ever think about that? I mean, I would think, uh, you know, well, how'd you get up on the roof to start with? I mean, how'd you get up there? You climbed up there from the inside? What would you do from the outside? Um, whatever, it doesn't say. But the point being is uh, going into the house is too slow. So jump or whatever get off that roof and run 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 you don't have time to go inside you don't have time to turn back did you forget something it's gone (laughs) whatever you forgot you don't have it now you forgot it if you didn't have it with you you don't have it now and that's the point and um this passage didn't talk about it but over in the uh all of it discourse he talks about uh pregnant or nursing mothers right Woe to those who are pregnant or nursing infants in those days. You know, I, pregnant women don't run fast. Okay? And, and holding infants, you're not going to run very fast. All right. Don't need to illustrate that, I don't think. The, uh, remember Lot's wife. I mean, the eternal example of looking back. Right? From that story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and she looked back. And, you know, whatever it is that's motivating you to look back or turn back or go back or take something with you, you know, can we acknowledge the fact that as as the kingdom of heaven is arriving with wrath, there's nothing back there you want to keep anyway. There's nothing that you want to keep anyway. What, What are you trying to save? You know, saving your life or saving your lifestyle, saving your possessions, saving your things. Uh, remembrances, tokens, memories of, of previous days or whatever. Why are you hanging on to that? At the point of Second Advent, why are you hanging on to that? Okay. Now today, of course, I'm not telling you that you can't have mementos or keepsakes or, you know, don't get crazy on me now. Um, but the application being, once the kingdom is inaugurated, what do you want to hold on to from the past? Okay, what do you want to hold on to from the pre? Uh, you talking about change of calendar? You're talking about BC and AD? 
what's that going to be like when Jesus is actually on the planet? You know, after Armageddon, shall we say, right? Uh, there'll, be, there'll be some kind of reckoning at that point. Um, but what do you really want to hold on to? And what good is it going to be? What value is it going to have? You know, uh, you carry around any uh, Confederate currency? You have any uh, banknotes from the uh, Republic of Texas? Well, why not? Well, what would you do with them? What are they going to buy? What are they good for? Okay. You have any Nazi currency from the Third Reich? I used to have some just as novelties. Uh, when I lived in Germany, in fact, Arthur showed me some. And uh, Arthur was a old German guy. and I'm sure he's with the Lord now. He was older than dirt when I knew him. But he... Uh, he showed me some of the things. They, a one million Deutschmark note. One million Deutschmarks on this single uh, paper currency. And um, with Adolf Hitler, it was, a, it was a picture on the on the bank note. And, and it was worthless. Uh, and even when it was issued, it was worthless. You, you needed a wheelbarrow to go buy a loaf of bread. They were just, it was just horrible, the inflation of what they were dealing with there. Um, but what do we want to save this stuff for? The old... What are, you, what are you trying to uh, save? Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And the preservation there, again, I'm not going to expand on this. Uh, this is a message Jesus repeats four or five different times. Um, we'll try to give a, a very thorough unfolding of this in uh, the Olivet Discourse. But the idea, not just your soul, but your, your way of life, your lifestyle, your, the, uh, um, the past. Are you trying to hold on to the past? Why? Let it go. Let it go. All right. Suddenness of judgment. Now, point G, and this is where I, I fixed this three different times in the Paralambano and the Afi Amy. Just, it's weird. My font changes to Sim Sum. I don't know what a Sim Sum is. I don't have a Sim Sum font on my system. All right, and I fix it, I save it, I close the file, and when I open it up again, this slide is just a corrupt thing. It's bizarre. Paralambano. P-A, I mean, you can still read it, it just looks goofy. P-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-A-N-O, right? Paralambano. You can read the letters. They're just spaced out and kind of like your pastor. Spaced out. Paralambano. Uh, 3880. Uh, that's for taking. Lombano is to take. Paralombano is to take alongside or to claim, uh, to take into custody, uh, to gather together. Paralombano. Number 3880. And then Afiemi is to leave or to abandon or to, um, to forsake. A-P-H-I-E-M-I. Afiemi. Number 863. This is a taking and leaving event. Okay, like our idiom today, we say take it or leave it, right? It's a taking and leaving event, as it's described here. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, another will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. All right. Uh, verse 36, I don't think, belongs there. It's, it's an insertion into manuscripts on the basis of the parallel in, uh, in Matthew. 
Two men will be in one field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Okay? It's, it's legitimate in Matthew. It's not legitimate in here, but it doesn't matter. The principle being is that of this taking and leaving event in every venue, in every realm, worldwide, in every realm, there is a taking and there is a leaving. And it could be as close as, uh, you know, you guys sitting together in, in chairs right next to each other. All right? One is gone. One is left. Now, um, it is a global event. I think it's interesting. On one side of the world, of course, it's nighttime, and so there's sleeping, um, rather in bed, whatever. There's, there's nighttime on one side of the world. On the other side of the world, they're working, right? Grinding and working in the, in the field and so forth. So you get the idea that all 24 time zones are involved. It's a global activity, all right? But please do not ever think or tell me that this is the rapture of the church. Okay? This is not a snatching event. And I meant to underline the word not. I was going to underline it. I was going to put it in all caps. I was going to color it red. This is not, not, not a snatching event. Different terminology between taking and leaving and snatching. Harpazo is the vocabulary for the rapture of the church as it's featured in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But beyond the vocabulary is the, the context, the reality of the context that demands that we have to be dealing with something different here. This is not a snatching event. Again, the Harpazo vocabulary, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, Number 726. And it must not be confused with the rapture of the church. All right? Don't fall, because of the similarities, don't fall for the fallacy of identity when it's not there. See? Say, well, uh, Adolf Hitler was a man. Pastor Bob is a man. So, Pastor Bob must be Adolf Hitler. Okay? Don't go there. <laughs> okay? Uh, there are similarities. Okay? Um, at the rapture of the church, there is a snatching. There is a departure. And, uh, and there are those who are not snatched. Okay? And remarkably enough, um, in no rapture passage is it ever uh, described... Uh, a body of people that are not snatched. The unraptured are never described in any rapture passage. Think I'm wrong? We'll look at it every single one here today. We've got time. Um, this uh, is a taking and leaving passage that describes both those who are being taken and those who are being left. All right? And both groups are in view. In the rapture passages, it's only the rapture, it's only the bride that's in view. And, and I'll, show that. I'll show you that. Um, so there's the vocabulary involved. Okay? There's the vocabulary involved. Uh, just, all right, let's hold your place there if you'd like, or don't. Um, some of you are such fast Bible flippers, I think you're offended when I tell you to hold your finger there. You say, I don't have to hold my finger. I'll just flip back when we're ready. All right, fine. Age of grace, do what you want to do. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
What are the primary rapture passages? Do you, do you have them? I mean, if you don't have them memorized, but at least know where they are. First Thessalonians chapter four, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, John chapter fourteen, Second Thessalonians chapter two. At least have a framework to say I know where to turn. All right, First Thessalonians chapter four. There's two primary, and then a couple of others where you can fill in the blanks and get some details. First Thessalonians chapter four. The Lord Himself. And this is about uh, departing. This is about going to be with the Lord. Proceeding. And uh, here's the... Uh, um, verse 14 says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Precede. Precede, meaning go somewhere, meaning we're headed to heaven, right? We're marching to Zion, right? We're, we're pressing on the upward way. And does that mean that those that have died already have a head start on us? Okay? Not in the resurrection. They are with the Lord. They are in heaven today, but they are not preceding us in the resurrection or in the uh, judgment seat of Christ, in the bestowal of eternal blessings and the reward. None of that. They haven't gotten there yet either. Neither have we. Not until we're all together. Not until he collects his bride. And so the emphasis here is on proceeding, going. And uh, although I freely kind of am a little loose with my precede and proceed uh, usage there, but you got the idea. Uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, rapture passages are resurrection passages. The taking and leaving passage has no resurrection associated with it. None. Some are taken, some are left. No one's raised. Okay, rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. Notice we're not left behind where we remain because they went first. They were raised. Then we are raised and we are caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So, again, we have this passage is describing everyone who is raptured, snatched, harpazo. That's caught up. Caught up in verse 17. It's harpazo. So all of our um, raping words, all of the harpazo from the Greek goes to uh, into the Latin. It's where we get our raptor, like velociraptor, or all of our um, hawks that are... Uh, raptors. All right. The um, snatching. Now, what about those who are not snatched? What about the unsnatched? Okay. The unraptured or the Tim LaHaye uh, left behind crowd. Tim LaHaye wrote a series of books and gave the first one the title for a term that is never expressed in the Word of God. No rapture passage ever mentions the unraptured. Certainly not this passage here. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay. You know, if, if you didn't have any other book of the Bible, if this was the only text you could go by, it would seem like every human being on the planet is, gonna, is, is getting raptured, right? But that's not the case. Because we understand the aspect of um, being in the Lord. Now, over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 
Verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So once again, uh, the idea of uh, proceeding and uh, who's preceding as we proceed, but we're going into heaven and you're not going to survive the glories of the dimension of light in your mortal bodies. Okay, that's not going to happen. I tell you a mystery. We will all, all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Again, who's we in context? Born again believers in Jesus Christ. We will be changed. Well, what happens to the unchanged? The unraptured, the unsnatched, the un... They're not even mentioned in this passage. You know, you can assume they're still around, they're, they're uh, unchanged, they're unsnatched, they're unimpressed. Okay, they're unmentioned. How about that? They're not even referred to in either of these primary rapture passages. The perishable must put on the imperishable, mortal must put on immortality. And uh, this is the... Uh, event here. So we understand you combine 1 Corinthians 15 with 1 Thessalonians 4 and you have the two primary passages that speak of the rapture of the church which is a taking, a snatching. A snatching event not a taking and leaving event. They're different. Different in the vocabulary, different in their uh, context, different in their emphasis or emphasis because there is no reference to the ones that are left. There's no... And... In, in both of these cases, we have a uh, resurrection in view. The transformation and resurrection in view. There's none of that in, in Luke. None of that at all. I mean, in Luke, okay, one's taken, one's left. But who's resurrected? Are the taken ones resurrected? Are the left ones resurrected? The, the verse doesn't say. Nothing says. And where were they taken to? Where, Lord? To your father's house where there are many dwelling places? Is that where? No. You're thinking rapture passage. This message is not a rapture message. All right. As I said before, Luke uh, or uh, John 14 is not a primary rapture text. In fact, at the time Jesus spoke it, uh, church was still mystery. And so much of the church application of John 13 through 17 uh, is only discernible after mystery unfolds. But it does say, uh, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am in heaven preparing this place for you, there you may be also and you know the way where I am going. So uh, when in Luke, he says, where, Lord? And he starts telling, well, look where the vultures are. Okay, Uh, that's where they're going to drop dead right there on the planet. Corpses all over the place at Armageddon. What kind of corpses are going to be around at the rapture? None. None. No corpses. Because our bodies are going to be changed. There won't be a corpse left behind. We will have no remains remaining. (laughs) Kind of neat. All right. Um, So your primary text are 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. Secondary text for additional details uh, John 14 and second Thessalonians chapter 2 where simply we get the um, 
the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to Him. And do not be deceived. It cannot come. The day of the Lord cannot come unless the departure comes first. The man of lawlessness revealed the son of destruction. So we have the reference here in 2 Thessalonians 2 to the order of the events. The day of the Lord cannot happen until the departure. Wrath poured out cannot happen until the ones promised to be delivered from the wrath to come are removed. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, those are secondary that little uh, informational passages that help to flesh out the details on the rapture of the church. Now, um, so if this is not the rapture, then what is it? If it's not the rapture, then what is it? Does the Bible describe another global event whereby the population is segregated? And it does. A second advent. It does describe in other passages something much more compatible to Luke uh, chapter 17 than what we have here. I tell you, the better identification, sub point two now, the better identification is not the rapture, but the removal of the tares before the wheat is gathered into the barn. And this was a full study we did in Matthew 13, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven parables. The better identification of this taking and leaving event is not the rapture of the church. But the removal of the tares before the wheat is gathered into the barn. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. So let's look at that. And let's see if we have uh, details that are consistent with um, a rapture application. Namely, um, only mentioning the taken ones and uh, providing a uh, resurrection in a dwelling place. Or whether we have a passage that describes uh, the ones taken, the ones left, and uh, no uh, no concept of resurrection. And you'll see that's what we that's what we're dealing with. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. There's also parallel accounts elsewhere. I'll just leave it with Matthew here. All right. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, "The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field." But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And this is a mystery of the kingdom, and this is describing the role of the adversary, uh, both in the church age and in the tribulation. The mystery stage of the kingdom, whereby we're in between the rejection of the king and the acceptance of the king. And so we can draw principles in the church age. In any field, in any lampstand where you have legitimate wheat, might there also be unbelievers, professing believers that aren't truly wheat, but they're tares. They look like wheat, but they're really not. They're not sown by the Father. They're sown by the adversary. Could there be unbelievers in the membership of Austin Bible Church? Say, well, we're not going to know until we're, until, uh, we're raptured and they're not. <laughs> right? On, a, on an ultimate basis anyway. Um, anyway, uh, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat. All right. Verse 26. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Uh, they're not uh, productive like the wheat's productive. And that's compatible by the fruit. You shall know them. A, a truly regenerate believer is going to bear fruit in that aspect. The slave said to the land uh, of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? 
He said to them, well, an enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no. Now, again, there's much fuller teaching on this in the, in the, when we covered this. There's already a past completed study for us in, in Life of Christ. He said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. There could be some damage involved in, in doing that. Could be some damage involved trying to rip out the tares. You know, think about the damage you do when you uh, start accusing people of not being saved in the first place. You know, you're saying, yeah, I don't think you're even saved. And you start to hammering away at somebody and doing some things, and you're just trying to root out tares from your flock. And uh, the guy really is saved. You're telling me I'm not saved? And then what kind of damage are you doing? And uh, and I will never doubt somebody's salvation. See, not, I may. Let me say that again. I will never express doubt of somebody's salvation to them confrontationally, verbally. Okay? I don't, I don't see how it's edifying, how it's productive. If I have a glimmer of a suspicion, then I'm going to make sure I'm preaching the gospel. Okay? And I'm going to make sure that uh, that the real issues of eternal life are made clear. And if if somebody accepts Christ... And uh, comes to me and says, Pastor, I just, it just made sense. I, I've been faking it all this time. I, I never really knew. And now I'm a believer. Okay. And they've been a part of the church for the last, you know, 19 years and 8 months and 12 days. You know, hallelujah. Praise God. Glad you're saved. You know. I'm not going to say, well, you know, dummy, I doubted it all along. I knew you were never saved. I... <laughs> no. No. Anyway, he says, no, don't root them up. You'll damage the wheat. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here we have a passage, very much like we have in, in Luke. We have a passage whereby we have a worldwide event, a gathering, where we have two parties that are being mentioned. Okay? What did we say about the rapture? In rapture passages, only, only the snatched party, only the transformed party is, is mentioned at all. The unsnatched are not mentioned. The untransformed are not mentioned. But in these passages, you have two groups that are mentioned. On the one hand, on the other hand. Okay? Rapture passages only teach the one hand. Second Advent passages teach both sides. And what happens when some are taken and some are left? What's happening is some are taken because why? They're being bundled up and burned. Ooh, that's not good. Right? And what happens in the second Advent of Jesus Christ is every unbeliever is removed from planet Earth. They are going to be thrown into hell. You want to use the language of uh, English? It's hell. In Greek, call it Hades. In Hebrew, call it Sheol. Or do whatever you want to call They're not going to stay on earth after the second advent. And uh, bind up in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Provision of rest. Provision of comfort. Uh, provision uh, that we see here. So we have two parties. A taken and a left. The, the ones taken are thrown into the fire, the ones left are preserved in the metaphor of a barn. 
So this is the picture of what we have here where some are taken, some are left. It's, it's like a, an anti-rapture, okay, right? Because in the rapture, you want to be snatched, right? Being snatched is good. Being snatched means caught up to be with the Lord in the air, brought back to the homes he's been preparing, introduced to the Father, being washed, being cleansed, being rewarded, being feasted, okay? So you want to be snatched in the, in the rapture passages. In the taking and leaving passages, you don't want to be taken, you want to be left. Right? So you see, it's, it's the opposite. Is that making sense? At the rapture, you want to be gone. At the second advent, you want to be left. <laughs> okay? You want to be left. So, Again, in rapture passages, there is never a mention made of who's left, of who's not taken. It's not mentioned in any rapture passage. In second advent passages, the taken and the left are both focused on and where they end up. And also in this, where's the resurrection in this? The ones taken are not resurrected. The ones left are not resurrected. Oh, you've got to understand that. This is why the post-tribulational rapturists are, are out of their gourds. Because if, if you have a post-resurrection rapture, in other words, if you say it's all the same, rapture, second half, it's all the same thing. Well, then what you're left with then is a transformation. Everybody's raptured, everybody's transformed, everybody's glorified. And then who's going to have the babies in the millennial kingdom? Because in the resurrection, there's neither marrying nor given in marriage. If you rapture everybody at second advent, put them all in the resurrection bodies, raise them all from the dead and, and do all that, then there can be no millennial babies. There can be no millennial unbelievers. There can be no millennial Gog-Magog rebellion at the end of the thousand years. You have to have unresurrected mortal believers to start the millennium. It's the only way to have babies born. It's the only way to have unbelievers at the end of the millennium. Which is why you have to separate rapture and second advent. Absolutely have to. So the better identification is the removal of the tares before the wheat is gathered into the barn. And then the last bit here. <laughs> point H. The Lord's reference to vultures. You've got to love a message about vultures. The Lord's reference to vultures makes clear that the taken ones, the taken ones are carrion. They're dead meat. They're corpses in the field. Corpses in the field. Those are the taken ones. Where, Lord? You know, when He says, when I come again, I will gather you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know where I am going, that's a rapture passage. But when He says, some will be taken, some will be left, and they say, well, where, Lord? He says, everywhere. All over this planet. They're going to be taken and their corpses will be eaten by the vultures because they're going to be taken. That is their souls, unbelieving souls, ripped from their unbelieving bodies, cast into hell. And there's going to be vultures everywhere. The amount of, of uh, uh, decomposition and, uh, and uh, scavenger, uh, well, they're going to feast. They're going to eat well. Revelation 17. I've got three minutes left, so I want to. I really want to. Uh, you know, uh, we still having lunch afterwards. 
Uh, we're going <laughs> to. Oh, gruesome, isn't it? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. It's supper time. All right, it's supper time. For the, it's a buzzard feast is what it is. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses. And this is, this is golden corral all over the place. I mean, everything. I mean, a, a buffet like you won't believe. And you want to you nibble on a little bit of king? Right over here. You want to nibble on a little bit of commanders? Right over here. A little bit of horses? How about right over here? I mean, the buzzards have never... They've been prepared for this hour. Those who sit on them in the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is when we descend on the white horses clothed in righteousness. Clothed in righteousness. So, the invitation to the birds. Notice at the end of this chapter here, the um, beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Uh, notice they're not thrown into hell. They're not even killed physically. They're cast alive into the lake of fire. And the rest were killed with a sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Where, Lord, were the vultures gather? All right. In other words, second advent, when this world is covered with cadavers. You know, uh, he can't flood the place again. You know, the flood was at one, you know, I mean, it was at least sanitary <laughs> in body disposal. The mockers say, well, how come we don't have any fossils before the flood? Because of the flood. You know, figure it out. All right. Um, well, there we have it. We'll come back. Uh, our next episode moves on into Luke 18. And uh, we got some parables. The parables of the persistent widow, the Pharisee, and the tax collector. So we'll learn the priorities of prayer. We'll remind ourselves that God expects us to be humble, not arrogant. And uh, move on from there uh, in episode 31. Uh, but that'll be one week from today, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for... Um, uh, Father, I just love what you've given us. You've given us a local church. You've given us a lampstand. You've given us um, the opportunity to rightly divide the word of truth. Father, we can rightly divide between rapture and second advent. We can uh, study a little here, a little there, Father. Line upon line, precept upon precept. We don't, we don't have to be sloppy or lazy in how we approach your scriptures. And Father, as we evaluate these things, we just thank you for designing what a, such a glorious plan. Thank you, Father. Thank you for uh, what we can look forward to in the blessed hope of being snatched and uh, what we're not fearing, Father, in the ter certain terrifying expectation of judgment. We're not fearing the uh, the wrath poured out. We're not fearing um, your uh, your judgment upon this world. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.